Welcome to Living Orthodoxy, an invitation to a deeper life in Christ. Living Orthodoxy is the parish podcast of St. Philip Orthodox Church in Souderton, Pennsylvania. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In today's Gospel, the verb to see is used five times. Jesus asks his followers to see and judge for themselves just who he is. St. Philip invites Nathanael to meet Jesus, come and see. He says that to him and to all who encounter the icon of the protection of St. Philip as they enter our church. For St. John, what we are to come and see is that the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, has become flesh and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. St. John says that belief in the incarnation of the Word is the whole point of the gospel he's written, and it's a litmus test for Christians. Every icon invites us to come and see the Lord for yourself. On this first Sunday of Lent, we remember the Seventh Ecumenical Council, and the triumph of orthodoxy. It's the feast of the restorations of the icons to the church over after a century of iconoclasm. It's called the century of blood because Christians were actually killing themselves over the issue of whether to permit icons in worship. The iconoclasts, which literally means breakers of icons, appealed to the prohibition against graven images in the Ten Commandments. Any image of God would be blasphemous, making that invisible, uncontainable God, the Creator, into a material created image. The lovers of icons, on the other hand, the icona jewels, as they were called, countered that in the incarnation of Christ, God, in fact, became a man. He became a creature. He became matter. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The invisible God has become a visible man. Thus, he can be depicted. You see, the argument worth dying for was the core of the Christian message itself. The incarnation unites the divine to the human, and that is the essence of our salvation. The Church reminds us at the beginning of Lent that the process of uniting our own human natures to the divine is an ascetic one, and that requires prayer and fasting. An icon is not merely an image like a photograph of Jesus, the human being. It does much more than represent. It reveals. It is the image of God became man a core theological statement in the form of art rather than words. We hear the word of God in words when the gospel is read. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see Christ in his divinity rather than Jesus the man when we see the icons. This is what separates the icon from Renaissance religious art, which presents Jesus as completely humanized. I remember visiting Michelangelo's famous statue of David. I entered that museum and I followed a path through the entire history of Christian religious art, finally arriving at David at the end of that path, 
considered the highest expression of the Renaissance and the pride of the city of Florence. The first paintings on that path are Byzantine icons. When you look at them, they're trapped in a glass case or behind a velvet rope. And you look under them and you can read a caption that says, this is the feeble early attempt at Christian art by primitive artists who did not know how to depict depth or perspective or proper proportions. Keep walking and you will see the progress that was made as the Renaissance unfolds. Now, of course, the Byzantines, who had designed the great Hagia Sophia, knew a little about perspective and proportion. But these art historians had missed the point for which the martyrs of the iconoclast period had chosen to die. The icons don't depict Jesus solely in his humanity, but as the Christ, God in the flesh, restoring the fallen image of God and man. And for this reason, our image of the crucifixion depicts Christ as the king of glory, even in his death, unlike the Western sacred paintings, which focus on human suffering. The icons reveal a vital theological truth rather than attempting to evoke from us an emotional response. The icon of the saints, too, they're not bad portraits. The icon shows the person in a transformed and deified state. Even the modern saints like Siloan over here or Nikolai of Zicha and South Canaan, these are saints for whom we actually have photographs. They're not depicted in their icons like they are in their photos. That's because the glorified and perfected body which we are promised is transformed and resurrected, recognizable but different as Christ was after his resurrection. The icons show the theological reality of the reversal of the curse and the freedom of the glorified body from corruption and from the life of fallen humanity. The saint in the icon confronts you face to face. He looks directly at you. He wants to make eye contact with you and engage you in his or her story of salvation. When my son was little, he liked to draw during church. He particularly liked to sketch superheroes. And also he would sit and copy the iconostasis. When Nick Pappas was here installing some icons, John showed him his sketchbook. He flipped through the pages, John Chrysostom, St. Nicholas, Batman, <laughs> Spider-Man, the Theotokos. Nick commented at the end, he said, well, you know, they're all superheroes. It's just that some of them are real. The icons introduce these superhero saints even to those who can't yet read. The icon's purpose is liturgical, and it cannot be understood apart from the liturgical context. The icon's meaning is theological, but for Orthodox, theology is prayer, not an academic pursuit. Our life's goal is deification, uniting ourselves to Christ, and that is what the icon proclaims. An icon in an art museum, like a pinned lifeless butterfly or a dried flower, is meaningless. The icon is an object of veneration. It's to be contemplated in prayer and to be kissed because of what and who it reveals. 
The defenders of the icons quoted St. Basil, who said, the honor paid to the image passes on to the prototype. When we bow before the icon, we're bowing before God, who is present in his saints. Like the iconoclasts, one of the things that my wife and I as catechumens struggled with was the veneration of the saints. How can we offer veneration to a human being, albeit a good one? We failed to understand the implications of the incarnation. The divine can be united to our human nature in the saints and in us, just as it has been in Christ. The priest and the deacon senses us as icons containing the divine image, just as he senses the saints on the walls, who by their asceticism and God's grace have most fully cultivated the divine image in themselves. We revere the saints because any good works that they or I do are from God alone and are manifestations of the divine nature united by God's grace to our human nature. In the divine liturgy, the priest prays, for we have done no good deed upon earth. If you understand this, you will never again struggle with arguments about salvation by faith being opposed to salvation by works. If you acknowledge that any good works that you do are not your own, but God's gift to you by grace and faith, you'll no longer perceive any conflict. This is what the icons proclaim to us, and this is why we venerate them. For Judy, the metaphor that really brought it home was St. Gregory of Nyssa's image of the saints as pieces of reflective glass. They reflect light brilliantly, scattered on a sunny beach, for example. The saints shine brightly with God's light, not their own. The icon always points to that light, inviting us to come and see. The icon of the Theotokos literally looks out at us and points to Christ with her hand, inviting us, like her, to have Christ formed within us. In that icon, Jesus and Mary have the same face because he drew his flesh from her and she was conformed to his image by her faith. That reciprocal relationship is also seen in their clothing. Red is the color of the divine. Every divinity student, when they graduate, receives a red hood. Blue is the color of the earthly, the blue planet we call the earth. Mary is clothed in an undergarment that is the earthly blue. And over that, you see, she's put on the divine red. Jesus and his icon, on the other hand, is clothed in a divinely red undergarment over which he has put on the earthly blue. On many icons, Jesus in his nimbus, that gold halo over the head, has written the letters Omicron Omega Nu, Ha'on, the existing one, the divine name, the I Am of the Old Testament. And he holds in his hand, even on this icon as a little child, a scroll, which is the wisdom, the knowledge, and the authority that belong to God alone, even as a little child. So this is not an icon that depicts a tender relationship between a mother and a child. 
It's an icon that reveals the incarnation of God in the flesh and the perfection of human nature, the deification or theosis that is possible by union with God. The whole orthodox understanding of salvation is revealed by this image. Opposite on the iconostasis is the icon of Christ, shown enthroned in glory, holding the gospel book, which is an icon in words. This is how Christ will come to us at the end of the age, at the end of our lives. It's an icon of the second coming of Christ, just as this icon of the Theotokos is an icon of the first coming of Christ. Between these two events, we find ourselves. And between these two icons, we find the royal doors through which Christ comes to us now in the proclamation of the gospel and the reception of the Eucharist. The gospel and the icons invite us all to come and see. Come and see who he is. Come and see what we are meant to be. This is our ascetic task on our Lenten journey. He has come to us in the flesh. He will come again in glory. He comes to us now in the Eucharist to strengthen us on the way. Let us draw near with faith and love and become communicants of life eternal. Glory to Jesus Christ. For more information about St. Philip Orthodox Church, visit us online at st-philip.net.